Our passage this morning is Numbers chapter 6, verses 22 through 27. Numbers 6, verses 22 through 27. One of our better known preachers in the PCA, Jason Halopoulos, posted on Thursday that due to the time change, pastors should remember that they get an extra hour to preach. I like that on Thursday because when I was working that, that working on this sermon on Thursday, the sermon was two hours long. So I appreciated that reassurance that that would be okay. Y'all are okay with that, right? No, hopefully not. But our passage this morning is number six. If you would all please stand with me as we read God's word out of honor and respect for his word. Numbers chapter 6, verses 22 through 27. Hear the word of the Lord. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to Aaron and his sons, saying, Thus you shall bless the people of Israel. You shall say to them, The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. So shall they put my name upon the people of Israel, and I will bless them. Beloved, what do we know about God's word? The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would speak to us by your word this morning, that you would minister through your spirit, carried in the words that I speak. Lord, help us to be able to hear and to believe what you have to say to us this morning. Drive it deep into our hearts so that we may know you better and serve you well. In Jesus' name I ask, amen. You may be seated. For many of us here this morning, this may well be the most difficult sermon that we will have to hear and receive this year. For many of us, if I were to stand here and find a passage and point out sin and say, this is what God says is sin. If you don't repent, he will surely cast you into the lake of fire. Don't you know God is angry with the wicked all day long? And we could easily say amen to that. But to hear a passage preached on that says God blesses his people may well be very, very difficult for many of us to hear and receive this morning. The gods of the people around us are usually angry and vengeful gods, aren't they? The Muslim god of Allah is such an angry god that you can live your entire life according to what the Quran says, and yet according to their mythology, when you stand before Allah, He may still look at you with anger and vengeance and turn you into hell. The progressive gods around us of tolerance seem on the outside to be a very warm and welcoming sort of religion, and yet they may dig up something that you said ten years ago, that was tolerated then but is no longer tolerated and because you said that now you are shunned and you must grovel and beg for forgiveness which you may not be granted 
Even the gods of tolerance are an angry and vengeful God. Many of us grew up hearing about the one true God in a way that suggests that he is always angry and disappointed in us. Hearing that even though he fully poured out his wrath on his own son, yet because of your sin, he is angry with you right now. He is disappointed in your sin and in your failures. And so even though his anger was poured out on his son, he is still angry at you and just waiting for an excuse to smite you, barely able to hold himself back from it. And so as we go through a passage on the blessing of the Lord, there may be, I believe, many obstacles to us hearing and receiving this. First, you may be tempted to think, well, this blessing is only spiritual. After all, we don't want to become like those prosperity gospel people who believe that God is just going to make them wealthy and healthy and prosperous and everything go well with their lives. So let's only take God's blessing as spiritual. You might be tempted to think, well, what about all of the bad things that do happen? Surely this indicates that God isn't really blessing people in the way that we see here. Or maybe even you think, if you look at my life right now, If this blessing is real that you're talking about, what about all of this going on in my life today? Either God's blessing is surely not real or I am not part of that blessing. And because of all these things, I believe this passage may be very difficult for some of us to hear and receive. I want to help us deal with those objections as we go through, but most of all, I want you to see just the depth of the riches of God's blessing towards his people. I believe the Holy Spirit would teach us this morning from this passage, the Lord's blessing confers his favor on his people. The Lord's blessing confers his favor on his people. We'll see that first in the initiative of the Lord's blessing in verses 22 and 23, the initiative of the Lord's blessing. Second, the depth of the Lord's blessing in verses 24 through 26, the depth of the Lord's blessing. And third, the seal of the Lord's blessing in verse 27, the initiative of the Lord's blessing, the depth of the Lord's blessing and the seal of the Lord's blessing. We look first at the initiative of the Lord's blessing. Look with me again at verses 22 and 23. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to Aaron and his sons saying, Thus you shall bless the people of Israel. You shall say to them, You notice, usually when we start a passage, we'll look at the context. What has led up to this passage coming forth? But if you look just before this passage, you'll see it's dealing with the laws concerning the Nazarite vow. There's no obvious way that that connects to this passage. You look after it, and uh, beginning in chapter 7, the passage that comes after this, 
We have all heard that Psalm 119 is the longest chapter in the Bible, but if you're reading through daily, Numbers chapter 7 is certainly the longest chapter of the Bible. It is just so repetitive over and over of all the offerings that the people brought for the dedication of the tabernacle. And so there's no obvious way that connects to this passage. But the context of the book of Numbers as a whole, I think, explains why this passage is here. God has made covenant promises to his people. I will be your God and you will be my people and I will dwell in the midst of you. And in the book of Numbers, the tabernacle has finally been erected. God's presence has come down and filled the tabernacle and it is now operating as the tabernacle of worship. And so God has numbered all the people and then he has arranged the camps of the people intentionally, saying three will camp on this side, three on this side, three behind, three on this side, so that surrounding the tabernacle are all the people of God. God is now literally dwelling in the center of his people. He is still guiding his people by the pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night, so that anywhere in the camp you can look to the center of the camp and see that the presence of God is dwelling in the midst of his people. And what does it mean for God to dwell in the midst of his people? It means that God's blessing will flow out from the center to all his people camped around him. This is what it means for God to dwell in the midst of his people. We notice, looking at these verses, that they begin with the Lord. The Lord spoke to Moses. The congregation did not come up to Moses and Aaron and his sons and say, please pray to God that he would bless us for being his people. Moses and Aaron did not take it on themselves to go to God and say, These are your people, Lord. Will you not give us a blessing to speak to them? No, the initiative of this blessing was all God's. It begins with, The Lord spoke to Moses. And he says, Even thus you shall bless the people of Israel. Thus here meaning in this way. God has not left it to Moses and Aaron to come up with a blessing for his people. He hasn't left it to their discretion on how they will bless his people. He has given the very words. God has gone to the trouble and the time to compose a blessing. Speak these words to the people. Imagine that. And he says... Speak to Moses and his sons, saying, Thus you shall bless the people of Israel. You shall say to them. This is a command. This word shall carries the same force that it does in Exodus 20. When God says, You shall not murder. When he says, You shall not steal. Here he says, to command Aaron and his sons, his ministers to his people, you shall bless the people of Israel. You shall say to them, it would be a sin for them to withhold the blessing that God has commanded to his people. 
God has made this a command. He takes this so seriously that he has commanded a blessing. He has taken the initiative and he has even composed the exact words that will be spoken over his people in blessing. I think we really needed to stop in these first two verses and just hammer this home that this blessing is God's idea, not ours. This is God's initiative. We need to meditate on that and understand it. That we didn't ask for this. We weren't praying for this as maybe the people of Israel when they asked God for a king and finally God said, okay, I will give you a king and gives them Saul more as a curse than a blessing to them. No, God has commanded this out of his own initiative. We need to meditate on the fact that the God we serve is a God who commands his blessing on his people. Our God commands his blessing to be spoken on his people. Is that the God you know? Is that the God you serve? The God who commands blessing to be spoken on his people. We have seen the initiative of the Lord's blessing. Look with me now in verses 24 through 26 as we get to the meat of this passage, these well-known verses, as we look at the depth of the Lord's blessing. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Before we look at these in depth, I want us to take them as a whole. What do we notice about this? First, there are this one blessing is made up of three blessings. And of course, any Trinitarian Christian will then perk their ears up and say, aha, I found one. It's a place in the Bible where there's three of something and that's significant, that's important. And it's even three blessings in one. That's significant, surely it is. What does it mean in Scripture when something is repeated? Well, first of all, it usually makes something superlative. It's better and better when the priest leaves the outer court and he comes into the holy place in the tabernacle or in the temple. That is a holy place. That's where the table of showbread is, where the lampstand is. And it is a holy place that only the priests should enter. And yet, once a year, under very specific conditions, only the high priest will pass from the holy place to the holy of holies, which literally is spoken as just doubling that word, the holy holy. It is the holy of holies. It is the most sacred place on earth. This is where God himself dwells over the Ark of the Covenant between the two cherubim. It is the holiest place on earth. It is the holy of holies. And yet, when we speak of God, when the Bible speaks of God, even that is not enough. It must be taken to the final degree. God is holy, holy, holy. Repeated three times. God is the holiest thing, the holiest being that exists, the holiest being that we can conceive of existing because he is holy, holy, holy. 
To repeat something like this three times in Scripture shows that it is the greatest possible degree. And so when we see the Lord's blessing given to us three times, it is saying that this is the greatest possible degree of blessing that can be conceived of. This is the blessing of the Lord. The other thing that happens when you repeat a thing in the Bible is that it makes it more certain to come about. In the garden, God says to Adam regarding the forbidden fruit, in the day you eat of it, you will surely die. It says in our English Bibles, but in the original, there's no way to really translate it. It's God says you will die, die. He just repeats the word die and that makes it certain that it will happen. Many times when Jesus is speaking to the crowds or speaking to his disciples, he will tell them, truly, truly, I say to you. Repeating that truly, truly emphasizes that this is absolutely certainly true because he has repeated that twice. And so when we see the Lord's blessing repeated three times in this passage, it is an absolute certainty that the Lord is blessing his people. It is the most certain thing that can be conceived of. It is repeated three times. Now you might read it and think, wait, are there three blessings or are there six? Because in every one of these, it is the Lord bless you and keep you. That is the formula, something about the Lord and something else. The way we should understand this is not that he is speaking of two different things, but that he is telling us the way it will come to pass. We could read it as, and so the Lord bless you and so keep you. And that's definitely within the range of that word. We're not making that up or having to add words to scripture. The word really does mean that. And so what we understand in this thrice multiplied blessing is that the first part always conveys God's attitude towards his people. And the second part responds. It is the consequence of God's attitude towards his people. So what is God's attitude towards his people? In verse 24, it says, the Lord bless you, which feels very much like when you're told by your teacher, you can't use the word in the definition. You're saying bless the people by saying bless you. What does that mean? Well, the word bless, Elmer Martins defines as to empower, to make productive, even to cause to prosper to empower, to make productive, even to cause to prosper. The very first words God speaks to Adam in the garden are to bless him. And what is the blessing that God speaks to Adam? He says, be fruitful and multiply and have dominion over the earth. And what does this blessing do for Adam? Well, it empowers him to have dominion over the earth. It makes him productive. He says, multiply. It makes him productive and able to multiply. And it causes him to prosper. And he says, be fruitful 
This is what the blessing of the Lord does. And so God's attitude towards us is one that would empower us to make us productive and even cause us to prosper. This is what it means when he says, the Lord bless you. And then secondly, he says, the Lord make his face to shine on you. When the Lord hides his face, it is in anger towards his people. He has hidden his face from us. And yet, when the Lord's face shines on his people, it means that all of his goodness shines towards his people. His goodness. This is what Moses asked for in Exodus 33. He says, show me your glory. And in Exodus 34, God says to him, I will make all of my goodness to pass before you and proclaim my name. And when God does this, when God shows Moses his glory in this way, makes all of his goodness to pass before Moses, when he comes down from the mountain, Moses' face is shining with that glory. Because all of the goodness of God had passed before Moses. Moses' face had absorbed that in such a way that now Moses' face is shining with the goodness of the Lord. For the Lord to make his face to shine on you is to show you all of his goodness, his love, his kindness, his mercy. Not the part of him proclaiming his name where he is holding his iniquities against you to a thousand generations. But no, when he is making his goodness to shine on you. And it says, the Lord lift up his countenance upon you. When someone's countenance falls, it's a very literal translation. Your face falls. You look sad or angry. Cain, when God rejected his offering, it says his face fell. You could see on Cain's face that he was angry about it. When the king sees Nehemiah come into his presence and his face is fallen, he knows to ask, Nehemiah, what is wrong? I've never seen your face look like this before. Nehemiah is sad because the walls of Jerusalem are knocked down still. And so you could see it on his face. That's what it means literally for your face to fall. When your face, when your countenance is lifted, it's like when Eli told Hannah, go your way, your prayer is answered, you will have a child. And her face, her countenance was lifted. It means to smile. You can see on the person's face that they are happy, they are joyful, they are smiling. That's what it means to lift up the countenance. God smiles at his people. Did you know that God smiles at you? I went most of my life not knowing that God could smile. No idea. Why would God smile at you and I? Almost every day as I'm working in my office, I look out the window and my daughter brings the grandbabies over. And when I see them, immediately I smile. I call out to Glenda, the girls are coming over. And I leave the room. If there's anything I can drop what I'm doing, I leave the room and I go see them. I am happy to see them. Why? 
They haven't done some neat trick outside. They haven't been particularly obedient in walking over. Just their very presence coming into the room makes a grandfather smile very widely. This is what happens when God looks at you and I. He smiles, not because you and I are particularly obedient, not because we've done something particularly good that made him happy, but just looking at us makes God smile. That is perhaps one of the most amazing things I ever learned from Scripture. In fact, in Zephaniah 3, it says that God rejoices over his people with singing. He sings, he breaks out in song, looking at you and I. This is the attitude of God towards his people. What is the consequence of God's attitude towards his people? First, he will keep you. That word keep means the same thing as we use when we say a castle is a keep. It's to guard, to protect. It is spiritual. Yes, you'll begin to have these objections come to your mind. But wait, it must only be spiritual. It is spiritual. In Jude's book, near the end in his doxology, he prays, the, the, Now to him who is able to keep you from falling. And Christ on his last day on earth, he looked at Peter and he said, Satan has desired to have you, but I have prayed for you that you may not fail. God keeps his people so that we do not fall, cannot fall away from his grace and favor. But it is not just spiritual Psalm 91, 11, and 12 says, For he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. On their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And right away you will recognize that and you will start to think, But wait, it doesn't really mean that. That's what Satan used to tempt Jesus, right? But did Jesus deny that verse, did Jesus say to Satan, no, 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 Satan, if I do what you ask, God will let me get hurt. No, he said, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. In other words, we don't presume on God's protection in such a way that we go drag racing down Highway 75 and just think, well, God will protect me. He's promised to keep me. You don't put the Lord your God to the test, but he has promised to keep you. The Lord's favor results in his graciousness towards us. He says, be gracious to you. That too is spiritual. This grace is the same grace that we see in the New Testament where God has saved us. He has put his grace on us so that we are saved. But it's also the gracious mercy in God relieving us of some of the miseries of this life. He is gracious towards us. He gives us good things in this life. And the final result of his favor is his peace. And you will know the word for peace there is shalom. It means, yes, that you would have peace from your enemies. You won't be attacked by muggers going home. It means that you will have peace in your soul, peace from worry or anxiety. 
peace and all of these things. The world is so full of things to be worried about and anxious about every day. Whether you watch the news or not, you will be hard-pressed to stay away from all there is to be worried or anxious about. There is inflation that's going to destroy our economy. There are wars in Ukraine and Gaza. There is climate change to worry about. There's an election coming up, haven't you heard? And this could be the most important election of our times. There's always something to be worried or outraged about. The world thrives on this sort of anxiety and outrage in people and sometimes the most outrageous thing you can do is to just simply be peaceful in such an anxious and outraged world we have peace from God now the objections will come to your minds I have no doubt you say you God has promised this sort of protections from us and yet we remember our beloved brother Harry Reader died in a car wreck last year. We know of Christians who have lost everything because their house burned down in a fire or was destroyed in a storm. We know Christians, beloved brothers and sisters that aren't here with us this morning because of serious illness, right? And you say to yourself, well, where is all this favor and protection and peace from God if all of these things are true? And yet, if we were to ask our brother Harry Reader this morning, would you trade places with me today? I don't believe there is a chance he would say yes. He has been rewarded already for his faithfulness. When you hear of Christians who have lost their home and everything in a fire or a storm, are they usually complaining and grumbling against God for his lack of protection? Or do they say things like, things can be replaced, but people can't. He brought us safely through the storm. We'll get through this. People go through serious illnesses. They come out not talking about how, well, I trusted in God and I got sick anyway. No, they say things like, I learned humility in it. I learned how to trust God more in that illness. I had a sense of God's closeness to me even though I was sick. God's protection and his peace extend to us even in the hard things in this life. And we know this because he has promised us all things work together for good to those that love God. In a very real sense, there is literally nothing that can happen to us that can possibly harm us. All of it will either take us directly to stand in the presence of God, fully conformed to the image of Christ, or it is working in us now to conform us to his image. And so nothing can really harm us in this life. Now maybe you're here this morning and you haven't put your trust in Christ. It is Christ of whom it is said, he himself is our peace. If you have not put your trust in Christ this morning, if you have not repented and confessed your sins and placed your faith wholly on Him, then God does turn a lowered countenance towards you. He is angry. We were children of wrath and vessels of destruction 
before our salvation. And yet, if you come to him, if you put on Christ, we are told, as we saw in our meditation this morning, in Christ we are blessed with every spiritual blessing. Run to him. Run to him, and he will no longer be angry with you. He will smile on you. He will give you his peace. He will forgive and restore you. Put your trust wholly in Christ this morning. And if you are a believer and you hear these things and you say, oh, if you looked at my life, you would know I don't deserve any such blessing from God. Amen. It is not because of what we have done that he smiles on us. It is because when he looks on us, he sees us clothed in Christ as in a robe. And so he looks at his own son in us and he smiles He smiles at the fact that day by day we are growing more and more to resemble his beloved son. And so his favor is poured out on us. And he has promised us all these blessings in Christ. The depths of the riches of his favor towards us are beyond our ability to comprehend. They are repeated three times so that we would know that they are the most superlative and certain blessings that we could ever imagine. We have seen God's initiative in the Lord's blessing. We have seen his depth of the Lord's favor. Now in verse 27, we see also the seal of the Lord's blessing. Read it with me again. So shall they put my name upon the people of Israel and I will bless them. Again, twice more, he uses this word shall. The word will in the second half of the verse is the same word, just translated will here instead of shall for reasons I don't understand. He says, so shall they put my name upon the people of Israel. You'll notice in every one of those blessings, they begin with the Lord, the Lord, the Lord. This is the personal covenantal name of God. It is his name, not just his title or one of his titles. It is the very name of God that is spoken in these three blessings in one. And it says, it will put my name on them. That seems like a strange phrase, I think, to our ears. What does it mean to put a name on someone? Usually in adoption, when you adopt a child, you put the family's name on that child. And what are you doing when you give a child a name that you've adopted? You have said they are now part of this family. They are now entitled to all of the protection and the provision and the affection of this family because we have put our name on them and said they are ours. And this is what God has done for his people. He hasn't merely reconciled us in the sense that, well, we're no longer his enemies. We're like, you know, the neighbors that live down the street that he tolerates somewhat. No, he has put his name on us. He has adopted us as his own in putting his name on us and said, we are entitled to his protection, to his provision, to his affection, because he has put his name on us. 
What an amazing thing. What an amazing blessing. And then he says at the end, and I will bless them. It's a perfectly reasonable translation. I won't argue with it too much, but it's so hard to see the, the emphaticness of this in the original. The word I is repeated. And so we might accurately say, and I, I myself shall bless them. And that verb bless, I'm not going to get you too deep into Hebrew, but that is the most emphatic form of that verb you can give. And so we should accurately translate this and I, I myself shall bless them. Exclamation point, exclamation point, exclamation point. God is saying this is a certainty. When God's ministers speak his blessing over his people, God is saying, and I, I myself shall bless them. When we leave this place here in several minutes, we will no doubt say to several people as we go, have a good week, have a nice day. And that's a nice wish. It's a nice sentiment. But that is not what is happening here when God blesses his people. He is not saying, well, my favor's on you. I hope that means you have a good week. No, he is saying, when this blessing is spoken, I will absolutely, certainly, actually bless my people. And you say, okay, but what does that have to do with me? There's no high priest here. We're not standing in front of the tabernacle. And maybe you miss the impact of this because we don't use that word blessing very much. But we use the word benediction, which means to pronounce or utter a blessing. When Matt comes up at the end of the service and he pronounces the benediction, that is not merely a wish that God would bless his people. It is not a prayer that we're asking God to bless his people. It is the declarative statement that God has made that I am blessing my people. And that is why we almost always, I don't think we ever have used any words other than those from Scripture. Usually this passage or often as well, 2 Corinthians 13, 14, where we say, May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. And you can see there the similarities between that and here as we repeat the name of God three times in there and invoke what God is doing to his people. Or when we use other verses to invoke God's blessing on his people, we are saying from God's word, this is what God has declared shall happen to his people. That is the blessing of the Lord. God has spoken and he has declared, I, I myself shall bless them. Why? Because he has put his name on us. Because we have been adopted into his family and therefore he blesses his people. And in conclusion, I hope you have been able to see that the Lord's blessing confers favor on his people. It comes at his initiative. God himself came up with this idea to bless his people, not us. The depth 
of the Lord's blessing is beyond our mind's ability to fully comprehend. God has promised us a blessing that is the most superlative and certain blessing that you could ever imagine. And the seal of the Lord's blessing means that it is a certainty. It happens in the giving of his blessing to his people. It's not a wish, it's not a hope, it's not a prayer. It is the declarative statement that God will himself bless his people. God has called you here this morning for your good. He has called you to himself to worship and to hear his word in order that he might bless you in order that he might convey to you all of this attitude that he has shown in his blessing and all of the results that would come from that blessing. Meditate on this. It may seem so pious to our minds to think of God as, well, he is so angry at sin, I need to work hard to make sure I don't sin so I won't have him mad at me. But far more effective is to meditate on the God who commands his blessing to his people. How would that make us live to know that God is smiling on his children as he looks at them? How would that motivate us to greater zeal in his service, to think of the goodness of God shining forth from his face on his people? How would that spur us on to love one another and to serve him here on earth? God's blessing confers his favor towards his people. Let us pray.